Welcome once again. We are here at our study of the Epistle of Philippians, and it is our seventh week. We're going to be looking at Philippians 1.20, where we ended last week, and go through verse 24, Lord willing. So glad you're here with us, and let's begin with prayer. Father, again, we are grateful to you for your word. Even in a world that has its ups and downs and is clearly indicating its fallenness, we thank you that in your hands we are safe. And as we come to this portion of Scripture, we thank you, Lord, that you called Paul to yourself and that you endowed him by the Ruach to write these words and to inspire them with your own imprimatur, and we bless you for that, Lord. We thank you, Father, that these words have meaning to us even in our generations many, many years later than when they were written, for you have maintained your word forever for us. And we bless you, Lord, for that. We thank you. And I pray for each one who is joined tonight and as we're studying together. I pray for each one and their families, um, their homes, and so forth, Lord. I just pray that you would use your word in all of our lives to make us more what you want us to be, so that we might be true witnesses of your grace and of your mercy and of your greatness, that you would receive the glory. So we thank you for this, and we bless you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Now, I'm not normally a fan, well, I'm not a fan, I should say, of the NIV. Uh, I think it has some good things, but uh, I thought we'd read the NIV tonight on uh, the first chapter of Philippians and just see how it goes. Now, I'm going to be, as I always do, substituting Messiah for Christ and Yeshua for Jesus. That's not how the NIV has it, but I just want to remind myself on a regular basis, of course, um, that the Messiah that we worship and that is our Savior and our Lord and Master is the one who walked as a Jewish man upon this earth for our salvation and gave himself up for us and who reigns now in heaven and intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. So here we are, Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Messiah Yeshua, to all God's holy people in Messiah Yeshua in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Messiah Yeshua. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Messiah Yeshua. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Messiah, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Yeshua Messiah to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Messiah. 
and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord, and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Messiah out of envy and rivalry, but others out of good will. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Messiah out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Messiah is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Yeshua Messiah, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Messiah will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Messiah, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Messiah, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again your boasting in Messiah Yeshua will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one Spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Messiah, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So that is a, uh, an interesting and worthy translation, uh, taking some liberties in some places, but in some cases all uh, translations have to take some liberties in order to make it uh, understandable English. So I'm starting back in verse 20. We finished with this uh, last week, but it, we need to have it because it becomes kind of the, uh, the beginning or introduction to the verses that follow. So he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Messiah will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now he talks about his earnest expectations and hope. By this he's describing that which he eagerly awaited. This clearly describes his faith in God and the promises of Scripture, for he could only anticipate two possible outcomes. Remember, now, just to have the background uh, again, Paul is in prison, and he's been imprisoned by false charges that he was causing riots and uh, doing other kinds of things against the uh, uh, government and so forth. And that so he was put into prison. And he anticipates just two possible outcomes, that he would be vindicated and set free, or that he would be found guilty and executed. In other words, the crimes for, uh, that, for which he is being charged would entail, in the Roman understanding, capital punishment. The only other time this word 
describing earnest expectations as used in the apostolic scriptures, is again in the epistle of Paul to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 19, and here it is attributed to the whole creation. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's our same word, where he says, his earnest expectations. It is interesting to contemplate the fact that in the same way that the whole creation anticipates the final consummation of all things, and in that anticipation still groans even as a woman giving birth to a new life. So Paul likewise anticipated the future in which whatever would come to pass, he would be kept and empowered by God to glorify him. And what does this emphasize? It emphasizes again the well-known doctrine made clear in the scriptures that God is the God who controls all things. He causes that which is to his honor and glory to come to pass, even if this includes, and it does include, the punishment of the wicked. So, Paul says that he knows that even though he's under this duress, that God will use it in a way that glorifies him. Moreover, when Paul writes here of his hope, it's the Greek word elpis, this does not mean he is hoping for something of which he is not certain, which is the way we oftentimes use that word in English, right? I sure hope this happens. Rather, the two terms, earnest expectation and hope, are clearly used together as describing Paul's full confidence that God would enable him to be a witness of his power and glory, no matter what the future events held. And Gordon Fee put it this way as we ended last week, these two words presume a near unity of ideas, so that hope does not mean wishfulness, but something like hope-filled expectation, as in most cases in the New Testament. Therefore, hope is full of content in the sense that it reflects the highest degree of certainty about the future. And this is why in the Apostolic Scriptures, our salvation is sometimes referred to as our hope in Messiah. It doesn't mean that we're not sure. It means that we're absolutely sure. And this is what gives us confidence, even in times of struggle and tribulation. He goes on to say that I will not be put to shame in anything. Such firm and unshakable hope is based upon a strong and growing faith in God himself and his promises. For Yeshua promised that he would always be with those who are his disciples. Right? We read this at the end of Matthew when he is commissioning his disciples to go and, and be witnesses to the nations. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, and when you see this, and lo, it means take special notice. It's an emphasis. And look, take special notice. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, some might say, well, he's just giving that promise to the disciples, to, his, to the eleven that were with him. But no, he says, even to the end of the age. That goes well beyond the lifespan of the eleven that were with him. So what must this mean? As I say, surely these are the words spoken to the eleven disciples of Yeshua. But the fact that Yeshua promises his presence even to the end of the age clearly indicates that his promised presence and aid attends to all who are joined to him through faith and are therefore kept by the Spirit for the final day of redemption. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now what was a seal used for in the ancient times? 
it was used to show absolute ownership. When they sealed the tomb that Yeshua was put in, it was because the government said, this is our property, we want no one messing with it. And, of course, because there were those who persuaded government officials to do that because they felt that the disciples of Yeshua would come and try to uh, steal his body away. But the seal, when it's used in the scriptures that way, means that it's something that whoever put the seal on it is going to make sure that it is maintained. And that's what it means. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, even as Paul faced a major trial, and was strong in faith, fully trusting the Lord for the outcome. So all who are in Messiah, all of us, likewise have the unfailing promises of God that He will enable them to remain firm in their faith and even rejoice in difficult times, knowing that God is in control and will bring all things to work together for the good of His people and for His glory. Now, I recognize that when we hold to the biblical doctrine of God's utter sovereignty, in the events of the universe, that there are questions we have. Well, then, he is not responsible for the sin in the world. No, he is not. But does sin uh, derail his plans? No, it doesn't. In a way, perhaps beyond our full uh, attempt to explain, God uses even the evil of men to accomplish his tasks, to accomplish his set goal. And what ultimately is his set goal? That all those whom he has chosen would be with him forever. And there's nothing that's going to stand in the way of that. I know that in, at least in, a, in our country here in America, you know, we've, we've had some difficult times, but not nearly as difficult as many nations. And yet, because we are so used to having things uh, fairly well put together, the fact that we have had uh, such a disruption in our economy and, and in the businesses and in our ability to congregate together and so forth uh, the past year and a half or more, uh, we kind of feel like we're under this uh, cloud. But you know what? God can use even this, can't he? And if we will trust him for that, he will turn what we may consider to be uh, hardship, he may turn that into that, that which brings glory to him and helps us reach out to others. What, was, what must we do to bring that about? We must be willing to trust him for everything. And even as Paul said, that he wants to glorify God, whether it's by his life or by his death. Those are two extremes, aren't they? Oh, that we could have that strong faith, and we can, as we seek to follow uh, God by walking in the footsteps of his son, Yeshua. He goes, but with all boldness, Messiah will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. The word order in the Greek would render this phrase more directly as, but with all boldness, as always and now, Messiah will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So the point that I want to make in that is that Paul's not coming to something new. He's coming to something that he has held and expressed in the past. Thus, the emphasis Paul is expressing is that even if in the near future he would face execution, he is resolved that this would bring glory to Yeshua, even as his escaping such harm would honor the power of God. So whether he uh, is tried and found guilty, or tried and exonerated, he said, 
Either way, it will be for the glory of God. For it is by the power God gives that His children are enabled to face even very difficult situations in life, demonstrating faith in God that He will sustain them with strength to endure. Now, I'm confident that there are many of us who could give testimony of that to one extent or another in our own lives. As we have gone through uh, very difficult times, perhaps very downheartening times for things that have happened that were out of our control, and yet God has sustained us and given us the courage and the will and the desire to walk carefully with Him and therefore to be even greater witnesses of His power as others see the difficulties we have faced But we are not giving up. We are continuing to bless the Lord for all that He has given to us, primarily for our salvation in Him, in Yeshua. So it is the power God gives that His children are enabled to face even very difficult situations in life, and by doing that, demonstrating faith in God that He will sustain them with strength to endure. Even as God was sustaining Paul in his imprisonment, So he firmly knows that God would give him the strength and power to stand firm in his faith regardless of what the future held. Isn't that really the, the, uh, what should I say, the benchmark of growing faith? That we're able to give to the Lord that which we cannot ourselves uh, change. And even the things that we can change we give to the Lord and ask for his wisdom and for his help. In other words, we come back to the idea that God is in control of all things and that by by submitting to His greatness, we can give Him the honor and the glory that He deserves. The Greek word translated boldness, megaluno, often takes the sense of to cause to be held in greater esteem through praise or deeds, to exalt, to glorify, to magnify, or to speak highly of, that's straight out of the, uh, the Greek lexicon. And most likely evidences Paul's full assurance that by the enabling power of the Ruach, he would never stoop to seeking an easy way out by, for instance, denying Yeshua to be his Lord and Savior. Paul was not in any way nervous or feeling like, oh, I hope I never deny him. He had resolved by the power of the Spirit that even if it required him to undergo a willingness to die for him, he would be willing to do it. Oh, that we would have faith that was strong. Uh, And we can. That isn't just faith for someone special like Paul. Paul had the same faith that we have, and we the same faith that he had. What does that mean? That we also will be enabled by the Spirit of God to face whatever comes before us, and to do so well as we trust the Lord and as we continue to grow in our understanding and love for Him and in building the strength of our faith. No, it wasn't that he was thinking he might fail, but rather, through the strength God would supply, Yeshua would be fully exalted as the true Messiah, the one and only Son of God, through His own testimony of faith and faithfulness. Sometimes faithfulness means that we are willing to accept punishment for what we know to be true. What is more, such assurance of faith is not simply the privilege of an apostle or teacher. 
but is the reality of all who have been born again by the Ruach, by the Spirit of God, and who therefore grow in their faith and faithfulness to God. Note, for instance, that Paul, writing to the believers in Rome, states, For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Now, some might say, Tim, that's to the extreme. Yes, I agree. But it's what we call a chalvachomer. If it's true for the heavy, then it's true for the light. In other words, if it's true for the heavy, which would be dying for his name, then how much more is it true for the everyday things that we encounter? If we're going to live for the Lord, then we have to live for him in, in every atmosphere and in every situation. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Messiah died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. That's Romans 14, verses 8 through 9. We who have been purchased by God to be his own children must therefore affirm without doubt that regardless of what the future may hold, we are eternally safe in him, and that both in life and in death we will be saved by his omnipotent power and grace. You see, when we come back to holding that and rehearsing that and confirming it and confessing it, it gives us a new outlook on the future. It gives us a new outlook on today with the things that we may be struggling with, with the uh, uh, issues of, uh, uh, of the downgrade of the economy and uh, other kinds of things. And we kind of wonder, where is it going to go? Am I going to lose my job? Am I not going to have... You know, okay, well, all of those things God knows. And when those thoughts come to us, we must say, Lord, I trust you for today, for tomorrow, and for the future. That you will do all of your holy will, and that will be good for me and glorifying to you. For it is therefore no need to fear the future or to worry about what the future holds. Paul will emphasize this again in the closing chapter of Philippians. In chapter 4, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Now, how, how is prayer and supplication bonded with thanksgiving? It's because we know when we pray that he hears our prayers, number one, and we pray that his will would be done. When we pray, Lord, this is my need, I don't know how you would you would uh, supply this need, but I trust you for it. And may your will be done. That's what it means to give thanksgiving. I know, O oh Lord, and I give thanksgiving that everything is in your control and nothing is beyond your ability to do and to bring about. And when we confess that, it gives us further strength to trust him for those things that otherwise would cause us great worry and concern. Now, there's nothing wrong with being concerned, and there certainly is nothing wrong with planning and doing what is right. Of course, that's what we must do. But when we have planned and we've been diligent and we've done what is right, and things don't work out the way they should, and we're in some kind of duress, we still know that God is in control. Paul's perspective was this. Depending on the results of the trial, the options, now I'm talking about Paul and his situation, and he's awaiting a trial, the options are life and death. Life refers to being set free, death to his possible execution. Even though Paul expects a favorable outcome, there is always the possibility that it might go against him. That, of course, would hasten Paul's eschatological salvation or vindication before the heavenly tribunal, right? Because to, 
if he were to be executed, then he would be with the Lord. But for now his singular hope is that Messiah, that is Christ, and thus the gospel, will be vindicated through his life or his death. Do you see how he continually puts forward the primary goal that God would be honored and glorified? Thus, Paul expresses the ultimate purpose of his life, the very purpose that should be held by all who are in Messiah, namely, that our lives, including the way we live and the way we face our final days, would bring exaltation to Yeshua. And I know that there are, I don't know any of you that are listening or will listen to this in the future. I know there are those of you that have faced uh, very big crises in terms of health and, and so forth and so on. And uh, uh, I know that you could uh, give even better, uh, greater uh, evidence of what it means to trust the Lord in those things. I've not personally been in those kind of situations. I may be in the future, but uh, we all may be in the future. We don't know. But we come now to verse 21, and this has to be the. This is the kernel. This is the the very kernel of what Paul is teaching us here. For to me, to live is Messiah, and to die is gain. The Greek of this verse presents itself as a saying that is to be remembered, a short, well-structured, and even rhythmic phrase, which is impossible to demonstrate in English translation. The Greek is, to zein Christos, kai to apothenein kerdos. So we have, and I've broken it down, to live, to zein Christos. The word is is not actually written in the Greek, it's it's, this is very common. It's to be understood. So, to zen Christos, to apothenein kredos. So, you can see Christos and kredos rhyme. And we have to zen and to apothenein. It's kind of a poetry kind of a way of doing things. Since the ending sound of the words is similar, the assonance, that which sounds alike, makes the phrase easily remembered. We should also be reminded that most of the people to whom Paul sent this epistle would not be reading it but would be listening as it was read to the community. Thus, this short but highly significant phrase would not only act as a conclusion of the previous verses, but would also form an easily repeated phrase in the minds of those who heard it. And I think this is undoubtedly why Paul chose it to, to write it this way, because it is the summary of what he's just said. Some have considered that the opening infinitive, Toad Zane, being a present infinitive is to be contrasted with the corresponding infinitive to apothenein to die which is an aorist infinitive now what is the difference between a present infinitive and an aorist infinitive a present infinitive is something that can be ongoing where an aorist infinitive is something that happens one time and is finished okay generally speaking so there are some who want to make a major difference uh, that there's some emphasis between that Lightfoot takes this uh, to thus indicate not the act of dying, but the consequence of dying, the state after death. In other words, that it's a one-time thing and it's over, whereas uh, to live is ongoing. Okay, But in this case, the tenses of the infinitive simply fit the general nature of the two concepts as portrayed by the Greek, where life is viewed as ongoing, thus a present infinitive, while death is uh, viewed as a one-time event, that is an aorist infinitive. But... We therefore should not seek to derive some special theological significance based upon the change in tense. It's just the common way that um, 
Paul would have said this. The obvious point of Paul's statement is clear. He declares himself and all of his hopes, desires, and efforts to be all for Messiah. But what does he mean by to die is gain? Why, and other translations say, to die is even better. This obviously does not mean that Paul had given up because of the persecution he was experiencing. In other words, he has made it clear that this primary goal is to exalt Yeshua in all of his life and well as well as in his death. So he hasn't given up. He hasn't like, I'm tired of this, just execute me. No, that's not it at all. Gordon Fee, regarding this phrase, writes this way. This expresses not a death wish, nor dissatisfaction with life, nor desire to be done with troubles and trials. It is the forthright assessment of one whose immediate future is somewhat uncertain, but whose ultimate future is both certain and to be desired. So basically, he says, whether it's this way or that way, I will honor God. God will be glorified in this. So once again, we see a perspective in Paul for which each of us who confess Yeshua to be our Lord and Savior ought to strive, namely, that serving the Lord ought to be the primary goal of our lives, and that when we face our final days, we glory in the truth that we will be with our Lord forever. And now we come to verse 22. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. So Paul continues to make known his inner longings and even his questions, though such questions are not a sign of weakening faith, but of a desire to know what the Lord's will is. There's nothing wrong with asking God questions, as long as we do so in faith, that he will uh, do his holy will. Maybe we'll get the answer, maybe we won't, but we'll know the outcome is according to his purposes. Paul has elsewhere used the word the flesh as describing the sinful nature, but obviously this is not the case in our text when he says, if I am to live on in the flesh. Rather, the opening phrase of this verse emphasizes the truth taught throughout the scriptures that life does not end at death. For Paul has already told us that to die is gain. Thus, in our verse, he specifies to what realm he is referring when he speaks of to live, for he adds, in the flesh. To live on in the flesh means to remain alive in this world, which would occur for Paul only if he is acquitted of the charges leveled against him in the pending trial. On the other hand, if he is found guilty of the charges against him, execution would ensue, but life in the very presence of Yeshua would be the result. So you can see his perspective. Either way, he is serving the Lord and praising Him and giving glory to Him. I think many of us who are believers in Yeshua have never faced such persecution. Now, there may have been some that you know or perhaps uh, even family members or whatever who may have. I know that there have been missionaries that I had uh, some acquaintance with years ago uh, who faced, uh, one of their family members faced death because... Um, they were hated, and so forth and so on, in the place where they were serving. But most of us haven't had that in our times. Yet it could come to that, couldn't it? Are we ready for that? Some might say, well, Tim, that's a morbid thought. No, it isn't. It is to consider is that I want my faith to be strong, so that if it comes to the point where I am told I have to choose between life or denying Yeshua, 
I will choose take my life. For He is my life. This is where oftentimes in affluent society we kind of lose the edge of this and we have to be reminded of it. Now I'm grateful that we have a society that enables us and allows us to uh, be open about our faith. But it hasn't always been that way throughout the world, has it? And in some places still isn't. So we must be ready to stand firm for what we know to be true. So we, many of us have never faced such persecution. Therefore, we rarely contemplate what it would take to remain faithful to Yeshua when the outcome could result in our being put to death. So even as we strive to strengthen our faith in God in order to be ready to face such a situation where uh, it were it to come upon us, we must not fear the future. For the scriptures teach us, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Messiah as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. You know, and another thing that comes to my mind as as we talk about this is this movement in the recent past to the so-called prosperity gospel. The idea that if you come to faith uh, and if you, uh, you know, say that you believe in Jesus, then all of a sudden things are going to get better for you. Everything's going to fall into place and there's just going to be prosperity like you wouldn't believe. Well, that certainly could be the case, but it isn't promised, is it? In fact, more often than not, the scriptures tell us that there's every possibility in this fallen world to be uh, set upon by those who hate God or who deny him and want nothing to do with him and want those who proclaim him to be quiet or gone. Yes, suffer for the sake of righteousness and if so, you're blessed, Peter tells us. So, in the conclusion, when Paul says, you know, whether to live or to die, he says, but it is to, to live on would be fruitful for you, and this will mean fruitful labor for me, he says. Here we see a sterling example of that for which all leaders and teachers at every level, and when I mean leaders and teachers, I'm talking about parents, moms and dads, uh, wherever we have opportunity to uh, help others and to, and, and to lead others in the truth. At every level, we should strive for this. That is, to have those who are led or taught as having a primary focus in our minds and energies. In other words, instead of putting the focus upon ourselves for what we're doing for the Lord, recognizing the focus is upon those that we're serving. The fruitful labor to which Paul refers is the spiritual fruit of the Ruach being developed and enlarged in the lives of others. For such maturing and spiritual growth brings glory and honor to Yeshua, and that is the ultimate and final goal of our salvation, that God would receive the glory. We are not saved primarily for our own good. Now, obviously, that is the outcome. But we are saved by God's grace for everyone to see who he is and the glory that is his. Moreover, we sense in Paul's words here a genuine faith in God's sovereign hand, for he does not speak of what might take place, but that which will inevitably come to pass, that is, 
the spiritual fruit that would come in the lives of those among whom he would labor. He states as fact that there would be fruit because he affirms that the word of God will be used by God to accomplish his purposes, even as Isaiah teaches us. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bear and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Isn't that just an amazing uh, impetus to give the gospel? If the word, if we give the word of God to others in, in the, the, the way that it tells us of the gospel, the good news of what it means to have sins forgiven in Yeshua and be promised eternal life, this means that God's word will always have an effect. We don't have to be great teachers. We don't have to be preachers standing on the corner necessarily or any of those kinds of things. What we need to do is give forth the word of God to others and help them see it. Now, if we're doing it with a, a believing community, okay, then we can help each other be what God wants us to be. We can do that in our families, with our children. It is our grand opportunity, and Paul saw that, that even though if it were up to him, as we'll see, he would just as soon be with the Lord, of course. But he says he knows that to stay alive is to be fruitful for those to whom he teaches and ministers. Thus, once again, we see an important aspect for teachers and leaders at every level to hold as an essential truth. It is the Word of God, the Scriptures, and their application to one's life that is used by the Ruach to bring forth spiritual maturity and the fruit of righteousness. And this is why we must, you know, the Reformers had it right. Sola Scriptura. Go back to the, the you know, the, the Bible as the sole basis for faith and for practice. Uh, solo Fidei. Only by faith. And Solo Gloria. Only for the glory of God. They saw the, the kernel of what it is to serve the Lord in truth. And Paul goes on to say, whether to live on or whether to be with the Lord, that is, whether the, uh, the trial ends up in, in his conviction and death, his execution, or whether it uh, absolves him of the crimes and he is able to go on and live as, as he normally would, he said, I don't know which to choose. Well, since, since it is clear from the wider context that the choice of the matter is not in Paul's hands, it seems best to understand the word choose to mean my preference. That is, if the decision were up to him, he was not entirely certain which he would choose, to be acquitted and live on in the world, or to be found guilty of the false charges, be executed and immediately be in the very presence of the Lord. He says, But I am hard-pressed from both directions. The word directions is added by the NSV there. He said, I am hard-pressed from both having the desire to depart and be with Messiah, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. 
So when he says it's very much better, what does that mean? Well, it's very much better for everything because there will be no sin, there will be no sorrow, there will be no sickness, and so forth and so on. So it's much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh, that is to remain on in this life, is more necessary for your sake. So the issue of eternal life after a believer in Yeshua dies is no question whatsoever for Paul. He knows and fully affirms that if he were to die, his spirit would enter the very presence of the Lord Yeshua. And, of course, this would clearly be his preference. Just considering such a reality fuels Paul's desire to be with the one he serves. Even contemplating Paul's words here should cause all who confess faith in Yeshua to ask themselves, Do I likewise long to be with Yeshua, and know without a doubt that when my days on this earth are completed, I will be with him? In other words, do we consider this? Do we contemplate it? All too often in our busy lives we neglect to contemplate our final and ultimate destination, that is, to be forever with Him. Though there is plenty of questions that theologians and commentaries have wrestled with in terms of the intermediate state, it seems quite clear how Paul understands it. Now, the controversy regarding the intermediate state, that is, the intermediate state is the time between one's death and the final resurrection. In other words, where is my spirit? Where is a person's spirit or soul when they pass away and they go to be with the Lord or not? Where does their soul reside? And what is it like in this intermediate state? Well, it seems quite clear how Paul understands it. The controversy regarding the intermediate state, the time between one's death and the final resurrection, is whether or not the disembodied spirit of the individual has consciousness. And this is where you get those who are teaching what they call soul sleep. That you just go into a non-existing, you don't know anything, you're not aware of anything. It's as though you're asleep and don't have any cognition whatsoever. Well, I don't think that the Scriptures teach that. I know it's a controversy, but I'm quite certain that the Scriptures don't teach that. Clearly, in this context, Paul expects to be with Messiah in full consciousness. The fact that Paul uses the metaphor of sleep to describe those who have died, for instance, I give it to you there in the footnote, in First Thessalonians 4, 14 and 16, and 1 Corinthians 15, and so forth, this does not suggest that he was teaching an unconsciousness in the intermediate state. He simply uses sleep as a kinder metaphor for death, but also is indicating that the life of the spirit continues even when the body is buried in the grave. Note that Paul indicates to depart, that is to leave the body, is to be with Messiah, and that this is very much better. This surely indicates a consciousness on the de departed spirit of the person who has died. In this regard, note also Paul's words to the believers in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8 Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So, once again, it just seems that it's impossible for Paul to have in mind some kind of uh, lack of consciousness for the soul after death. Rather, the soul is aware of where he or she is. Furthermore, Yeshua's promise to the believing thief on the cross likewise makes it clear that the departed spirit of the deceased exists in a state of consciousness in the intermediate state, 
And he was saying, Yeshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And paradise is just another way of saying the heavenly, the heavenly realm. And so, you know, this can be a comfort for us too as well, for those of us who have family members, close friends, whatever, who are believers and have passed away. We know by the scriptures that they are in the very presence of Yeshua himself. Their current situation is far better than anything they experienced while they lived upon this earth. And we know that when the resurrection occurs, the body and the soul, the spirit, will be reunited and we will be forever with the Lord. So Paul goes on to say, having the desire to depart and be with Messiah, for that is very much better. Thus Paul, in expressing his desire to depart and be with Yeshua, teaches us that for the believer in Yeshua, there is no need to fear the future, nor to fear death. Now it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do everything we can to avoid death. Of course we should. And we should not allow death to come without giving a battle. God made us to live. Death is the result of the sin that came into this world. But nonetheless, we don't need to fear it. Surely we are to cling to life and guard it carefully as a gift from God. But in our daily lives of serving Him and walking in the faith He has given to us, we must not fall prey to fearing the future. When our days are finished... We will be with the Lord in a place where death and the demise of the fallen world do not exist. Well, you know, the uh, unbelievers say, oh, that's a bunch of fairy tales. No, it's not. It's truly what God has revealed to us. And by faith we believe it and we know it to be true. Yet to remain, Paul goes on, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul undoubtedly had taken the words of Messiah directly to him as he was traveling toward Damascus as the primary focus and impetus of his work for Yeshua. Remember, we have this in Acts 9, 3-6. As he, that is Paul, was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Yeshua, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. How is it that persecuting the believers was persecuting Yeshua? Because we are in him. We are one with him. At this divine encounter, Paul was struck blind and brought into the city of Damascus, where Ananias was instructed by the Lord to go to him so that he might receive his sight. At first... Ananias was hesitant to go, knowing the manner in which Paul had persecuted the followers of Yeshua. So in giving the instruction to Ananias, Yeshua stated, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Surely this message to Ananias was made known to Paul. In other words, you can't believe that Ananias wouldn't have uh, said, this is what the Lord told me. Now, how exactly the Lord told him, we don't know. Perhaps there was audio, audible voice, I don't know. But at any rate, 
Clearly, Ananias made this known to Paul, and this undoubtedly formed the primary directive for his ministry and service to the Lord and his people. Thus, it seems quite likely that his willingness to remain on in the flesh was that he would continue to fulfill the very mission to which Yeshua himself had directly appointed him. And, in maybe not so a dramatic way, has not the Lord clearly, individually, directed us to walk in his footsteps? and to be witnesses for him. And so once again, we are encouraged by the scriptures, by what Paul has written, to be the ones that we are to be and to grow in our faith and in our knowing for certain who we are in him. Well, thank you again for coming and look forward to being with you all again next week as we continue our study in this epistle to the Philippians.